to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The American Civil War Museum is one of the brightest stars in the constellation of historical institutions dealing with the American Civil War. It includes the Museum and White House of the Confederacy and Historic Tredegar, both in Richmond, Virginia, and also a branch at Appomattox, site of the surrender of Lee's army. If you haven't been to all three branches, make time to go. But for those who can't or haven't been in a while, we'll find out tonight what there is there, how it got there, and what it's like to work there from Kathy Wright, curator at the American Civil War Museum. We'll talk to her tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a calm Twilight evening in September 2016 from the third floor of the Brewster Building, as always, in the cam- on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, but not speaking for the state of North Carolina or its absurd laws, not speaking for the University of North Carolina system or its branch here in Greenville, not doing any of that, just talking for myself, just as I know. Our guest will speak for herself tonight, as we always do it straight up and legal here on Civil War Talk Radio. Well, East Carolina has been dismayed by our football team's performance last week, got clobbered by Virginia Tech. Uh, we're looking to uh, right the ship this week against uh, one of the Florida schools. I think it is Central Florida. It will be an interesting moment because my two football allegiances go to the place where I work here at East Carolina, and my alma mater, University of Michigan. And Michigan played UCF already this year and beat them. I think it was 
420 to nothing, something like that. Um, actually, it was closer than that. It was like 51 to 14. We gave up a few long gainers to the, uh, the Central Florida Floridians, or whatever their team name might be. But it will be interesting to see how uh, these two teams compare the Pirates and the Wolverines playing an opponent in common. Uh, hopefully, the Pirates will, will also be able to beat those guys. We'll see. Michigan is looking good, but uh, they've got a tough test this weekend. But this is not all sports radio. Well, actually, it almost is because we also have to fill you in on the story of uh, Greenville FC. It's time for Pitt County soccer to resume. The local county league is back underway. And uh, you may recall in past seasons I've told you about how my team, Greenville FC, has done. But uh, I no longer play for Greenville FC. I now play for Greenville United. Uh, I have always played for Greenville United. I have always been at war with Greenville FC. My wife is teaching 1984 right now to her. 12th graders, so I'm, I'm in a double-speak mood. Uh, my old team reorganized, picked up some new players, gave up some old ones, and basically disintegrated and, and joined other teams, and I didn't really hear about it online. So I, I felt I was sort of left out in the cold, and I went to the league organizer and found a team that was short of old guys, because every team has to have three old guys or, or female players at all times. And got on board a new team, and our first opponent was the the rump remnant of Greenville FC, and man, was it satisfying to beat those guys last weekend. Normally, the good news after a game is that I'm not injured, or at least not permanently injured, but this week, the good news was we we, uh, put a licking on them, I think it was 7-2, and uh, that was truly satisfying. Well, enough local uh, game talk. Let's talk about what's coming up on Civil War Talk Radio next week. Return of uh, old friend of the show, Mark Dunkelman. He is the keeper of the flame of the 154th New York Regiment. and Talks and writes about them regularly, blogs about them. But he has a book now out which is called Patrick Henry Jones, Irish American, Civil War General, and Gilded Age Politician. On October 12th, the traditional Columbus Day, also my birthday, we'll have Deborah Redden Van Tal. Uh, I hope I'm saying her name right. We'll find out when she gets here. But we'll talk about her book, Confederate Press in the Crucible of the American Civil War. On October 19th, uh, James Hufstead is the author of Lincoln's Bold Lion, The uh, Life and Times of Brigadier General Martin Davis Hardin. And then we've got a story of Morgan and his raid into Ohio, Morgan's Great Raid, the remarkable expedition from Kentucky to Ohio. The author is David Mowry. He's written other things about this. And, uh, a listener suggested that I get in touch with him, and the book looks very interesting, so happy to do that. Then on November 2nd, we uh, hit the big time talking to Vicki Bynum, who has been on the show before. Uh, many years before we talked about her book, The Free State of Jones. Since then, it has been made into a movie. We were talking about the movie when she was on almost a decade ago. Finally did come out this year. So she is not too important to continue to talk to old friends, fortunately. And she'll be back with us on November 2nd. And she has other books we'll discuss as well. You can buy those books by going to impedimentsofwar.org, the 
auxiliary website for Civil War Talk Radio, maintained by Mark Gaffney. And there you can click on the Amazon buttons for each of those books, any book that appears on the show. And by clicking through, somehow that causes the website to gain some dollars or pennies at a time, which are useful to pay the web costs. And you can also donate directly to Civil War Talk Radio at CivilWarTR at AOL.com. It is a PayPal donation site. You don't need to have a PayPal account, I don't think. I, I have no idea how they can take your money if you don't, yet they claim they don't. They, you may not even need to actually click on the button. You may just think about it, and they will start taking your money out of your bank account and giving it to me. Uh, and as I suggested last week, first, very grateful for all, all the donations that do come in. They do help buy books uh, for the show. They help pay for the website costs, and they build morale here at Civil War Talk Radio when I use them to buy something colorful and shiny to keep me entertained between episodes. Uh, consider a recurring donation, $5 a month, price of a single Big Mac and fries and overly large drink, and for that price you can support Civil War Talk Radio. Just something to think about. But uh, because I do pay my taxes every year, not everyone does, I understand, but I do, and I do uh, recognize these donations are not tax-deductible on your part, nor on mine. I declare them, so so you can't deduct them, sadly. Uh, I'm not a 501c3. You have to actually uh, just give up the money, and that's the end of the story. And that's the end of our rambling. Let's get to the show and talk to our guest tonight. Kathy Wright is a curator at the American Civil War Museum, which has three branches, two in Richmond, one in Appomattox. We'll find out where she is and what she does there, uh, and many other things about the American Civil War Museum. Uh, Ms. Wright, are you there? I am here. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's, it's good to join you. Well, it, it's good to have you. I think we had the had the good fortune of meeting you last June at the Society of Civil War Historians Conference in uh, Chattanooga, and I think we were just coincidentally sitting at the same table at dinner and talking about what we did, and when I found out you were working at this really incredible museum, I thought, this is, this is a great show topic, we've got to get together, so I'm glad that has worked out. Um, let me start by asking uh, about the three sites of the American Civil War Museum, and uh, tell us a little bit about them and, and where you are located. Certainly. Um, I am located at the, um, arguably, one of the oldest portions of, of the three sites. Uh, it's at 1201 East Clay Street in Richmond, Virginia. Um, that's the site of the White House of the Confederacy, as well as um, a separate museum building um, that heretofore was known as the Museum of the Confederacy. Um, so the collection staff and the collection storage areas are located within that building. Um, and so that um, we've been there since the museum opened in the White House of the Confederacy back in 1896. The other site that's located in Richmond is at the historic Tredegar Ironworks, uh, which is right down near the James River. Um, they formerly uh, had been um, a, a private um, iron foundry and manufactory of, of various other items. 
um, but it became incorporated as a museum, which opened in 2006 and was known as the American Civil War Center at Historic Tredegar. Um, and that is incidentally going to be the physical location of our new museum building once that opens in uh, spring of 2018. So that's, that's very exciting. And the collection will also be moved there at that time. The third site is one that was opened by um, the now former Museum of the Confederacy in Appomattox. Um, and that opened its doors in 2012 and is still referred to as the Museum of the Confederacy in Appomattox, um, as we don't have any immediate plans to change the overall focus of the exhibits at this time. Um, but that was really wonderful to uh, have a facility that really focuses on the final year of the war and uh, with particular emphasis on Lee's surrender at Appomattox, but, but really looking uh, also at the events that led up to that what the outcomes uh, were in the immediate aftermath and in the post-war period. Um, that facility also has a temporary exhibition space, um, which currently is showing an exhibit on um, veterans uh, in the post-war period. I've, I've seen that our, exhibit. Our, 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 our three sites. I've seen that temporary exhibit, the current one there, and it is really outstanding, as, as is the whole museum. Uh, if... Uh, Listeners, if you're looking for something to do, this may join the Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, this hallowed ground tour. I've heard from uh, some of you who are interested in going. Hope you'll join us. Uh, that is where we finish uh, on the last full day of the tour. We go to Appomattox and the Museum of the Confederacy there and see the, the, the regular exhibit and whatever the temporary exhibit is. Go also to the, uh, the nearby surrender site, the actual... Uh, Appomattox Courthouse National Park Service site. It's a really uh, memorable day. So, Kathy, the, these three sites you mentioned, uh, the one, the original Museum of the Confederacy in the vicinity of the White House of the Confederacy is going to move the, the going to move the whole thing to Historic Tredegar by 2018, or will you continue to maintain... Yes. Um, essentially what's going to happen is that we will continue to own and operate the White House of the Confederacy as a restored historic home. Mm -hmm. um, um, but the museum function of a, a temporary and permanent exhibition space, as well as um, uh, various kinds of collection storage and the collection staff offices are all going to be relocated uh, down to a new building that's going to be constructed at the historic Tredegar site. Um, so that will be a um, two-story facility um, with one large permanent exhibition and a temporary exhibition space that um, will either have one larger or two smaller temporary um, exhibitions going on. And um, also a, a large um, area for, for the museum shop. Um, and the majority of the second floor will be devoted to collection storage so that we will continue to house the object and photographic collections as well as um, conduct various kinds of research appointments. The, um, uh, I, I should mention that the archival collections uh, are, are um, going to be physically transferred to the Virginia Historical Society as part of this, mm -hmm. this overall plan, um, although the museum will continue to retain ownership of those items. But the, the goal is to get them uh, cataloged and inventoried in a manner that we have not been able to prior to now. Um, and, the, and the Virginia Historical Society has 
um, a, a wonderful trained staff uh, who, who are available. I think, well, I know that they're open six days a week for, for researchers and possibly seven. Um, so it's going to really provide an unparalleled level of access to the archival collections, which will be a wonderful boon for researchers, historians, genealogists. That is very exciting. The, uh, the, so the museum itself is going to be, the, the current museum building will no longer be anything. Is that correct? Uh, essentially. It may, um, it may end up being um, basically retail admissions and restroom space, but it is unlikely that it will continue to serve any function as a public museum. Which, um, listeners, if you've been there, you know that the the parking situation in that part of Richmond is is dire. Uh, it is very difficult to get into that location. It's, I can't imagine how you'd get a school bus into that location. And that has yeah, been a, physically it's impossible. Been, the students end up having to park a couple blocks away and walk. Um, we're essentially in the midst of a hospital complex, which has grown up around us over the past several decades. So that's made things very difficult for people to find us or so park with, near us. So it, it's been a problem uh, that has needed a solution for a long time, and it's good to hear the progress that's been made. We're going to take a short break and come back and talk more about this. I also want to ask you about your own background, which normally I start with, but I was so excited to get into the museum I launched for the first question. Uh, we'll come back and talk more with our guest, Kathy Wright, curator at the American Civil War Museum in Richmond, Virginia. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Kathy Wright, 
curator at the American Civil War Museum in Richmond, Virginia. It is uh, a organization with several branches, the original Museum of the Confederacy, as it was once known in downtown Richmond, the a new sited historic Tredegar, also in Richmond. And for several years now, they've opened, they've operated a branch at Appomattox, uh, the Museum of the Confederacy there, a fascinating place, well worth a visit. It's a long drive from anywhere to Appomattox, but it's definitely worth it. Uh, Kathy, I, I wanted to ask a question that I know my students, if they are listening, are certainly curious about, which is, how does one get such a cool job as being a curator at a Civil War museum? Uh, many public history students would love to have that kind of position. Uh, what was your path to, to this uh, this employment? Well, there's, there's certainly a large element of luck involved in sort of being in the right place at the right time. Um, but um, I have always had a, a, a love of and interest in history and uh, knew that I wanted to do something with that in a professional sense. But I determined fairly early on that I did not want to be a history professor and uh, kind of have to be responsible for coming up with great ideas for new history books and that kind of thing. So I started thinking about what other paths that I could take that would allow me to work with history. And the university that I was attending as an undergraduate, which is back in my home state of Missouri, um, had an um, internship program with the Harry S. Truman Museum and Library in Independence, Missouri, just outside of Kansas City. And I signed up uh, and applied for that, was lucky enough to get in one summer. And so I, I spent one terrific summer there working more largely with the archival collections, um, but having a chance to frequently tour through the museum exhibits, uh, as well as have a fascinating tour of the storage vaults by the, um, by the museum staff. And it was, it was really a, a terrific eye-opening experience where I saw visitors um, interacting with history in a really engaged manner um, and learning about complicated notions such as the decision to drop the atomic bomb um, and various other things um, in a way that just seemed to be really... Um, really very, very interesting to me overall um, as I was trying to figure out kind of what to do with my life. Um, so I decided that perhaps a job in museums and particularly working with collections, but working to make meaning out of the items in collections would be something that would be very appealing to me. Um, so at that time, I, I looked around the country to see what kinds of museum studies programs were available um, and I realized there were sort of two different tracks uh, towards that sort of thing. Um, one could either pursue uh, a strictly museum studies aspect um, where, where it's a little bit more in-depth with um, what you're learning about all of the different aspects of museum work, but without a particular focus on a historic period. Um, the other track was to really um, get a master's degree in history with a concentration in public history or museum studies or something like that that would essentially give you um, a, a, a richer depth of knowledge about a particular historic era, uh, but would also give some hands-on uh, and theoretical kinds of museum work. Um, so that was the path that I ultimately chose because I, I knew that I wanted to work in history museums, and I mm -hmm. felt that having um, a strong background and knowing a lot about a, a particular period would would be very beneficial to me. Um, I, I'd always been interested in essentially any 
uh, period of history that I bothered to kind of look into. Uh, but the more that I studied American history, the more I came to, to see the Civil War as this fascinating crux out of which everything before led in and everything that's come out of it somehow ties back to. Um, so I ultimately applied and was, um, was able to attend uh, the University of North Carolina at Greensboro for their mm-hmm. master's program in American history with a concentration in museum studies. And um, enjoyed my, my time there and was able to get a job shortly after graduating um, with the Stonewall Jackson House in Lexington, Virginia, which was a terrific historic house museum that really gave me a uh, wonderful opportunity to experience um, working as part of a small, very tightly knit staff uh, that was basically involved in the day-to-day operations of a, of a museum. So doing everything from working with the collection to conducting tours to participating in special events and helping to plan and organize those. Um, it, was, it was really wonderful. But when I um, had the opportunity to apply for a position that I had heard had become available at what was then the Museum of the Confederacy in Richmond, Virginia, I sprang at the opportunity to even apply for that because um, anyone who works in Civil War museums um, or virtually any museum in or around Virginia knows that the Museum of the Confederacy had an absolutely fantastic collection um, of not only Civil War artifacts but antebellum and post-war items as well. So I um, felt very fortunate when I was selected for that position uh, because of my background in Civil War history and my experience in working in a historic house setting. They were looking for someone who could help care for the White House of the Confederacy. So that took me to Richmond back in 2008, and I've been there ever since. Wow. Well, it is a a very encouraging story, one I will be sharing with my public history students, that... uh, these stories often do have good endings, and people end up in, in really interesting places. Now, the White House of the Confederacy, this is the actual house where Jefferson Davis and his family lived, and it is open to the public uh, with, a, the last time I was there, it was guided tours only. Uh, yes, it, it is still guided tours um, with the house furnished with so many um, artifacts that uh, were there during the war uh, period or were owned by the Davis family. Um, we feel that for security purposes that we need to have a, a, a member of the guide staff available for that purpose, as well as to provide some interpretation um, about the Davis family and what their lives were like during the years that they lived there. Now, one of the challenges of the Museum of the Confederacy is the, the constituencies, the the kinds of visitors you get, obviously there are people, uh, I would guess like most of those listening uh, to us talk, who are just interested in the Civil War from a historical aspect. They want to know more about it, fascinated by all elements of it. But certainly there are some people who are still partisans, who, who have not yet figured out that the war ended in 1865. Uh, I recall talking to, to John Kosky, the, the historian at your institution, once where he, he said it was an effort to constantly stress this is the Museum of the Confederacy, not the Museum for the Confederacy. And so do, do you, from a curatorial point of view, maybe not dealing with visitors 
uh, maybe it's it's not the same kind of issue, but from an interpretive point, surely there are people who come to the Jeff Davis house as as though it were a shrine, who are who are there to uh, to see a pro Confederate exhibit. Uh, yes, is, um, the, the Dr. Kropke's quote, which you mentioned, is is one that I uh, have actually repeated many times myself um, mm-hmm. to people who often have preconceived notions about what the museum is or what it should be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, there, um, it's it's been very interesting um, as part of the merger of the Museum of the Confederacy and the American Civil War Center at Historic Tredegar, which took place back in back around uh, 2013. Um, the Museum of the Confederacy side ended up receiving a lot of um, very angry emails and phone calls and uh, correspondence from, former, from some former members who were upset at our plans to change our name, which yes. was ultimately determined to be the American Civil War Museum. Um, they were upset about the name change. They were somewhat to a lesser extent um, angry that um, we had sort of broadened our mission, which now for all of the sites involved would include um, trying to tell the story of the war um, from both the Confederate side as well as the Union side and to, and to incorporate um, soldiers, civilians, African-Americans, um, old, young, men, women, you know, everyone um, into the story. And I I don't know if it was um, so much that as the fact that some people felt that by changing the name that we were somehow trying to become more politically correct or to involve or or to get involved in some of these culture wars. Um, But to me, the issue of the name has always been a bit beside the point. Uh, Um. I understand that it, that the word Confederate or Confederacy can certainly uh, carry quite a lot of, of weight, particularly as we've seen with a lot of the goings-on in, in the news and the world around us. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the end of the day, if that name or that word is creating such a sense of hostility among um, some people um, or alienation, when, we're, when our goal is to try to be an educational, interpretive organization, that um, simply preserves portions of the past in an order to come to a greater understanding about it, um, then if that name or that word was interfering with that, then we should, should seriously, at that point, go and, and reconsider it. So I personally am rather glad that that has changed because um, I know from experience, you know, trying to explain to some people that I work at the Museum of the Confederacy, that just hearing that word would sometimes cause people to almost recoil in a very powerful way. Um, and then that was often when I would chime in with Dr. Kosky's quote about us not being a museum for the Confederacy, but to preserve the history so that we can continue to, to study and learn from the past. In terms, of, let me ask about what you do and, and how, how your work is affected by or affects interpretive stance of the museum. Uh, I'll, I'll approach it from the, the ignorant visitor point of view, which is, uh, you work in a museum, what do you do all day? Uh, and having worked in a museum for nine years, I, I heard that enough times, so I'll ask you that question. Yeah. We don't sword fight all day, sadly. Um, <laughs> I, I think some people think that we must, you know... Uh, 
particularly working in the collections department, um, that we must be, you know, having a lot of fun with the artifacts. But in fact, a lot of the time, it's quite a bit more mundane. Um, uh, I do perform a lot of research appointments for people as well as uh, answer correspondence, uh, both uh, mail, telephone, and, and, and these days more and more emails. Um, this can range from anyone from a, a young student who's doing a classroom project to um, college and, and PhD level uh, students, uh, as well as professional historians, people seeking to learn more about their own family histories, uh, authors seeking photographs or images of objects for their books. Um, so we really deal with a, a wide swath of the public. Um, um, I was hired at the museum as a collections manager, uh, but have since been promoted to curator. And so now I have a greater um, involvement with and responsibility for the content of the various exhibitions, particularly with the new museum. Um, I've been selected as the, as the curator for that. So that, that has been a, a tremendous um, honor for me, as well as a enormous challenge, um, which I'm doing my best with our um, exhibition design team and the other staff at the museum uh, to to work out what that exhibit is going to be able to cover um, and how we're going to to address that. So that's been um, probably the the single largest involvement that I have had with creating content in in terms of interpretation for the museum. Um, Let me ask but you. I also believe very strongly in. Um, particularly in this digital age of putting information onto the Internet in the form of online databases that will allow people to search the content of our collections themselves um, so that they can discover if there are items that are of, of, of interest to them. Um, so to that end, we've spent literally years uh, as a collections department with the help of countless interns um, to build and flesh out our collections database uh, which now is online with all of the objects and photographs from our collections listed in it. Um, and we will continue to work on the archives portion as well. Um, but that's uh, been um, a huge source of pride for us. What What is the website, if, if a listener wants to go look at that collection right now? Certainly. The, um, the overall website is ACWM, for American Civil War Museum, .org. Uh, once you're on that main landing page, um, there's a button that says the collection, which is in the banner near the top portion of the screen. And once you have clicked on that, uh, you will see a button on that page sort of toward the right-hand side, which says search the collection. And that's the button that will take you directly into the online collections database. Um, and it's been really amazing. Um, I think it was last Christmas I was uh, out doing a, a public program um, and having dinner with the group beforehand. A woman who was seated at my table started telling me about her, her Civil War ancestry. And as soon as she mentioned a particular last name that was kind of unusual, I remembered it. And I remembered it from our collections database. So I pulled out my cell phone and went to the website, pulled up the, the database, typed in the name, and was able to show her... Um, I believe that they were a pair of revolvers and a holster that her ancestor had used during the American Civil War. And she had no idea that these existed, let alone were right here here in Richmond. So she subsequently contacted several of her family members, and they scheduled a research appointment to come in over the holidays to, 
to view this part of their own family's history. It was very, it was certainly very touching. That that's a that that is a great thing when you have make those kind of connections and you can get people to uh, uh, you know to to in touch with their own past. Uh, that sort of moment doesn't happen every day, but uh, in general, getting people connected through physical objects that they can look at and see in some cases probably not touch but uh, but be very close to the associative value of the the historical object remains unparalleled but also the online access the ability to to, to see stuff even if we cannot uh, be there is something that is, is new and changing in the museum world the uh, what we'll do we'll take a Another short break in just a moment. When we come back, I want to ask you about the process of the new museum design, how uh, how you see that happening, what kind of collaboration goes on, and, and what input uh, you might have into that, and, and just where museums are going generally. We'll talk about this and more with our guest tonight when we return. She is Kathy Wright, curator at the American Civil War Museum. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Kathy Wright of the American Civil War Museum in Richmond. As we're talking during the break, I've got uh, the computer open to the uh, website uh, with the Voice America folks, so I can keep track of things. And uh, in the corner, email pops up, and I see a set of Civil War questions has just arrived from my daughter, who attends a different UNC system school. We won't mention them by name, except they lost. They gave up 70 points to the Pirates two years ago. Uh, and she's got a set of questions for a course she's taking with her professor, who was once a guest on this show, but I don't know if he remembers that. Uh, 
so I'll get to answer questions uh, professionally later on this evening. Um, Kathy, the, the question I wanted to ask you as we were leaving the last segment about the collaboration, my experience at the Fort Wayne's late lamented Lincoln Museum uh, was involved the we moved to a new building, built a new permanent exhibit that opened in 1995, and the two-year process of moving the collection, designing the new exhibit, working with exhibit designers, architects, uh, conservators, exhibit preparators, all kinds of different professionals, I found incredibly stimulating and fulfilling. Uh, we argued about everything. The curators wanted the objects protected in certain ways. I wanted them accessible in other ways. The architect wanted them displayed in certain ways. The exhibit designers said this is what's possible and practical for the amount you're paying us. And uh, everything was a compromise, but it came out just as a wonderful success. Are you getting to engage in that kind of give and take yet involving the new building? Yes. Uh, the process that you described sounds um fairly typical for museum exhibition design. There's definitely a tug of war that goes on between um, a lot of the historians that are providing input. Um, collections people tend to want to put everything under a, a plexiglass bonnet or behind glass of some kind and to prevent people from touching it. Um, and uh, the, the exhibition designers are always very positive, but always keeping an eye on, on the finances as well. Um, but they really have tremendous experience and um, wonderful ideas when it comes to um, how to engage the public in, in creative ways and how to, how to visually make uh, artifacts and information appeal to visitors and are laid out in a, in a logical and effective manner. Um, so there's, um, and then of course there's the fundraising side of things within the museum right. uh, who, who are doing a terrific job of making sure that we have enough money um, coming in as planned. And um, in many cases, um, they're writing and applying for grants and then making sure that, that those are ad administered. Um, so, we're, you know, they're, um, it, 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 it really does take a village to open an exhibition. Um, and in this case, um, I would say probably closer to three years of planning overall. Um, but uh, when it, you know, once you stop and think about not only the exhibition part of things, but then, um, in our case, uh, transferring a collection that numbers over 20,000 uh, objects um, mm -hmm. and about 5,000 photographs uh, into a new physical storage area and making sure that everything is accounted for along the way and packed within an inch of its life in foam and bubble wrap and all of that kind of thing. Um, it really does become a uh, physical as well as, as as mental task that that lies ahead of us and that we're currently engaged in. It's a very exciting time, and you get uh, hearing the different viewpoints of all those different professions. I, I remember our architect wanted a really nice drop ceiling for a collection storage area, and our curator said, no, that just means mice can live up there. We don't care if it <laughs> looks nice. This is where we want to store the stuff. Uh, yeah, the I've, I've learned that part of uh, part of working in a collections department is starting to think a bit like a uh, a um, sort of of disaster planner. Uh, you're always mm -hmm. thinking about the worst of what could happen and how you can possibly head that off. <laughs> exactly, and you have to be aware of that at all times. That possibility. Uh, mm -hmm. So, what is the 
what is the coolest object you've been able to really work with uh, since you've That's been like there? picking a favorite, and that's just too hard, <laughs> I think, for most curators. <laughs> uh-huh. But um, I do tend to gravitate toward items with unusual or interesting stories behind them. Um, and I've had the opportunity to do some really fascinating research with various objects in the collection. So I'll begin with one of those, which is one of my favorites, um, which is a, a message in a bottle. And the bottle is a medicine vial that's uh, about three inches long. And inside of it is a rolled up piece of paper that is so tightly rolled, um, and of course being within the bottle, that you can't read it. And this thing has been on exhibit probably almost continuously uh, since it was donated to the museum back in 1896. Um, and it was sitting on exhibit when I first encountered it um, with a label that explained that it related to the siege at Vicksburg in 1863, but that the message had never been delivered because Vicksburg uh, was surrendered. So the message barrier uh, had turned around uh, on that day, apparently, and brought it back, and the message had never been opened. And this was the tantalizing last sentence on that label. Um, so at one point I went to our senior curator um, and asked if they had ever thought about opening the bottle and reading this apparently previously never read message. And he said that they had thought about it, but that out of concern for uh, possibly damaging the artifact, that they had decided just to kind of leave it alone. And I said, well, have you ever consulted with a conservator about whether it could be safely opened and this could be done? And he said, well, we've never quite gotten around to that level of things. And so I asked if, if it would be all right if I contacted um, some conservators about the possibility of opening this in a safe way and whether they would recommend that. And so that was agreed to. And uh, I ended up taking this item off exhibit one morning and transporting it to a uh, very talented conservator here in Richmond who had worked with uh, Colonial Williamsburg to open a about... Um, I think he said over 200 very old bottles that they had discovered somewhere. Um, and he'd safely opened every one of theirs. So he felt confident that he could make an assessment on whether ours could be safely opened, um, which it ultimately was. Um, and so the, the paper was removed, at which point he turned to me and said that he was not a paper conservator, so I would need to take the item to a paper <laughs> conservator to see if it could be safely unrolled and read. Uh, which I did, and which they were able to do. And so one morning I got into work, because we'd had to leave it with them for a, a slow process of humidifying the paper and very gently uh, unfolding it, uh, as it had been rolled up so tightly for nearly 150 years at that point, um, they needed to very gently relax the, the creases. Um, and so that took a period of about two to three weeks. And once they were able to get a snapshot of the message and send it to me, and I saw that image come through, I was extremely excited um, getting a chance to read something that uh, no human eyes have looked at in so, in so many years. Um, but I was very disappointed when I looked at the image because there was only one part of it that I could read, and the text said July 4th. The entire rest of the message appeared to be in a secret code. <laughs> Ugh. So my disappointment then very quickly turned to more excitement as I realized that this was a secret encoded message that had been written out and sent the very morning that Vicksburg was surrendered. So this, you know, desperately needed to be looked into further. 
And I was initially convinced I could take home a few books on Civil War cryptology and crack this thing with a couple hours' work, and that very quickly proved not to be the case. Um, So I asked around the museum, and we found not one but two um, people that had contact with cryptologists. So we sent the image and a transcription of the text uh, to these two cryptologists. Uh, One was active duty U.S. Navy, and one was retired CIA, and asked both of them if they could crack it. And we decided that having both of them work on this would would work to our benefit because we could compare the result of whatever they came up with and see if they, in fact, reached the same conclusion. Um, So another few weeks went by, and they were both able to get back to us with their um, decoded text. And so for the first time in about 147 years, we were able to read a message that had been written, um, and it had been sent to General... General Pemberton inside of Vicksburg, Um, and we don't know exactly why the bearer of the message turned around and returned it, Um, but it's conceivable that they saw a U.S. flag now flying over Vicksburg and simply turned turned around, or um, maybe they actually got into the city and then realized that uh, there was no point in delivering it, and and then at that point that they returned with it. Um, But the message was not signed. So there was a third layer to the message that um, kind of required us to look into the context of the message uh, as well as the various figures in that area uh, as to who would have had reason to communicate this particular piece of news to General Pemberton inside of Vicksburg. And the final bit of that mystery uh, was that the the sender was uh, General John G. Walker uh, of Walker's Greyhound, who was... um, currently stationed at that time uh, on the western side of the Mississippi River. So we believe that the message bearer uh, would have put the message inside of a glass bottle to protect it possibly from uh, water from the Mississippi River from possibly getting onto the message and, and ruining the ink. So all in all, it was it was a fascinating process, and it just goes to show that even something as small as a piece of paper in a glass bottle can have really fascinating mysteries and shed new light on tremendous historical events. Well, but you can't leave us hanging. What, what did the message say? <laughs> the message began, um, General Pemberton, you can expect no help from this side of the river. And uh-huh. it went on from there. Um, uh-huh. So that, that line about this side of the river was one of our important clues. Um, one thing I've been asked uh, numerous times about this message is that if it had been delivered, would it have changed the outcome of the war? And it's very dramatic, to, or, or even of, of Vicksburg and the surrender at Vicksburg. You know, would it have been necessary for Pemberton to have surrendered the city and his army to General Grant? Um, and the answer to that question um, is that no, the, the delivery of this message would not have made no. uh, any really large difference. Um, the context clearly seems to be that Pemberton was on his own and any any hope that he may have cherished uh, that General Walker and his division could possibly change things or, or even help to alter the outcome uh, was impossible. Well, it, it, it is a great story and the way one can unravel a mystery that's been there you know, for a century and a half is... is what keeps us going in many cases, uh, studying these sorts of things. With just a minute or so left, uh, uh, 
quick thought on on the future of the museum. Do you see uh, increased interest? Do you see things continuing to develop uh, in a positive I do. direction? I, I think um, this is a fascinating time to be working at a Civil War museum because there's many history museums that struggle with a sense of relevance in the 21st century um, when many museums are, uh, are experiencing decreased visitation. Uh, but fortunately, I think we've seen um, throughout the news over the past few years uh, how, how the past does matter and how it continues to resonate in modern times. And um, the fact that the Civil War is a topic with more books on it than any other topic than Christianity um, is a very telling um, aspect, I think, of how those four years continue to fascinate and shape us. Well, it, it is uh, certainly the case people continue to uh, listen to Civil War Talk Radio, hopefully. They uh, go to museums, they do all these things. Uh, the Just again, for visitors who want to go, currently, just so we get everything clear, as we speak today in September 2016, the Museum of the Confederacy is still open in downtown Richmond, Yes. What, when will it close uh, for the opening of the new facility in, in 2018? It will, it will probably close after the opening of the new facility. Uh, the idea is that we will not close um, any of the current museums until the new building is open. And um, we do not have a timeline right now as to exactly when the old facilities will close after that. But we certainly always want our visitors to Richmond to have uh, large primary exhibitions that cover the span of the war. So we will always have something available for them here in Richmond. Um, if they plan on coming in 2018, they may wish to check back with our website to find out a more detailed schedule at that time. So come, uh, if you're going anywhere near Richmond, if you're joining us on the This Hallowed Ground Tour, we'll certainly be going to uh, uh, through Richmond, and we may organize ourselves in some way to see uh, some of these sites, but we'll definitely go to the Appomattox Museum. If you're going to Richmond, listeners, don't miss the American Civil War Museum in its current location, in its new location. Uh, it is one of the premier collections in the United States and is absolutely uh, not to be missed, and one reason is because it's maintained by professionals like our guest tonight, curator Kathy Wright. Kathy, thank you for joining us on Civil War Talk Radio. It's been wonderful to join you, Jerry. Thank you very much. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm-hmm.